Chapter 12 This Cloud of Possibility Amos was in Israel on a visit in 1984 when he received the phone call telling him that he'd been given a MacArthur Genius Grant. The award came with $250,000, plus an extra $50,000 for research, a fancy health care plan, and a press release celebrating Amos as one of the thinkers who had exhibited extraordinary originality and dedication in their creative pursuits and a marked capacity for self-direction. The only work of Amos's cited in the press release was the work he'd done with Danny. It didn't mention Danny. Amos disliked prizes. He thought that they exaggerated the differences between people, did more harm than good, and created more misery than joy, as for every winner there were many others who deserved to win, or felt they did. The MacArthur became a case in point. He wasn't grateful for that prize, said his friend Maya Bar-Hillel, who was with Amos in Jerusalem shortly after the prize was announced. He was pissed. He said, what are these people thinking? How can they give a prize to just one of a winning pair? Do they not realize they are dealing the collaboration a death blow? Amos didn't like prizes, but he kept on getting them anyway. Before the MacArthur Genius Grant, he had been admitted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Soon after the MacArthur, he received a Guggenheim Fellowship and an invitation to join the National Academy of Sciences. That last honor was seldom bestowed on scientists who weren't U.S. citizens, and it wasn't bestowed upon Danny. They would follow honorary degrees from Yale and the University of Chicago, among others, but the MacArthur was the prize Amos would dwell upon as an example of the damage caused by prizes. He thought it was myopic beyond forgiveness, said Bar-Hillel. It was genuine agony. He wasn't putting on a show for me. Along with the prizes came a steady drizzle of books and articles praising Amos for the work he had done with Danny, as if he had done it alone. When others spoke of their joint work, they put Danny's name second, if they mentioned it at all. Diversky and Kahneman. You are very generous in giving me credit for articulating the relationship between representativeness and psychoanalysis, Amos wrote to a fellow psychologist who had sent Amos his new journal article. These ideas, however, were developed in discussions with Danny, so you should mention both our names, or, if that appears awkward, omit mine. An author of a book credited Amos with noticing the illusory sense of effectiveness felt by Israeli Air Force flight instructors after they'd criticized a pilot. I am somewhat uncomfortable with the label the Tversky effect, Amos wrote to the author. This work has been done in collaboration with my longtime friend and colleague Daniel Kahneman, so I should not be singled out. In fact, Daniel Kahneman was the one who observed the effect of pilot's training, so if this phenomenon is to be named after a person, it should be called the Kahneman effect. The American view of his collaboration with Danny mystified Amos. People saw Amos as the brilliant one and Danny as the careful one, said Amos's friend and Stanford colleague, Percy Diaconis. And Amos would say, it's exactly the opposite. Amos's graduate students at Stanford gave him a nickname, Famous Amos. You knew that everyone knew him and you knew everyone wanted to hang out with him, said Brown University professor of psychology Stephen Sloman who studied with Amos in the late 1980s. The maddening thing is that Amos seemed almost indifferent to the attention. He happily ignored the ever-growing media requests. You probably won't be better off after you have appeared on TV than before, he said. He tossed out as many invitations unopened as he acknowledged. None of this arose from a sense of modesty. Amos knew his own value. He didn't need to make a point of not caring what people thought of him. He actually just didn't care all that much. The deal Amos offered the encroaching world 
was that their interaction was to be on his terms. And the world accepted the deal. United States congressmen called him for advice on bills they were drafting. The National Basketball Association called to hear his argument about statistical fallacies in basketball. The United States Secret Service flew him to Washington so that he could advise them on how to predict and deter threats to the political leaders under their protection. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization flew him to the French Alps to teach them about how people made decisions in conditions of uncertainty. Amos seemed able to walk into any problem, however alien to him, and make the people dealing with it feel as if he grasped its essence better than they did. The University of Illinois flew him to a conference about metaphorical thinking, for instance, only to have Amos argue that a metaphor was actually a substitute for thinking. Because metaphors are vivid and memorable, and because they are not readily subjected to critical analysis, they can have considerable impact on human judgment even when they are inappropriate, useless, or misleading, said Amos. They replace genuine uncertainty about the world with semantic ambiguity. A metaphor is a cover-up. Danny couldn't help but keep noticing the new attention Amos was receiving for the work they had done together. Economists now wanted Amos at their conferences, but then so did linguists and philosophers and sociologists and computer scientists. Even though Amos hadn't the faintest interest in the PC that came with his Stanford office. What could I do with computers? he said, after he'd declined Apple's offer to donate 20 new Macs to the Stanford Psychology Department. You get fed up with not being invited to the same conferences, even when you would not want to go, Danny confessed to the Harvard psychiatrist Miles Shore. My life would be better if he weren't invited to so many. In Israel, Danny had been the person real-world people came to when they had some real-world problem. The people in real-world America came to Amos, even when it wasn't obvious that Amos had any reason to know what he was talking about. He had a hell of an impact on what we did, said Jack Marr, who was in charge of training 7,000 pilots at Delta Airlines when he sought Amos's help. In the late 1980s, Delta had suffered a series of embarrassing incidents. We didn't kill anyone, said Marr, but we'd had people getting lost, people landing at the wrong airports. The incidents nearly always could be traced back to some bad decision made by a Delta captain. We needed a decision model, and I looked for one, but they didn't exist, said Marr, and Tversky's name kept popping up. Marr met with Amos for a few hours and told him his problems. He started speaking in math, said Marr. When he got into linear regression equations, I just started to laugh, then he laughed and stopped doing it. Amos then explained, in plain English, his work with Danny. He helped us to understand why pilots sometimes made bad decisions, said Marr. He said, you're not going to change people's decision-making under duress. You aren't going to stop pilots from making these mental errors. You aren't going to train the decision-making weaknesses out of the pilots. What Delta Airlines should do, Amos suggested, was to change its decision-making environments. The mental mistakes that led pilots of planes bound for Miami to land boneheadedly in Fort Lauderdale were woven into human nature. People had trouble seeing when their minds were misleading them. On the other hand, they could sometimes see when other people's minds were misleading them, but the cockpit culture of a commercial airliner did not encourage people to point out the mental errors of the man in charge. Captains at the time would be complete autocratic jerks who insisted on running the show, said Marr. The way to stop the captain from landing the plane in the wrong airport, Amos insisted, was to train others in the cockpit to question his judgment. He changed the way we trained pilots, said Marr. 
we changed the culture in the cockpit and the autocratic jerk became no longer acceptable. Those mistakes haven't happened since. By the 1980s, the ideas that Danny and Amos had hatched together were infiltrating places the two had never imagined them entering. Success created, among other things, a new market for critics. We started this unknown field, Amos told Miles Shore in the summer of 1983. We were shaking trees and challenging the establishment. Now we are the establishment, and people are shaking our tree. Those people tended to be self-serious intellectuals. Upon encountering Danny and Amos's work, more than a few academics experienced the sensation that a person feels when a total stranger walks up and begins a sentence, don't take this the wrong way, but whatever might follow, you just know that you're not going to like it. The sound of laughter coming from the other side of Amos and Danny's closed door hadn't helped. It caused other intellectuals to wonder about their motives. The glee is what created the suspicion, said the philosopher Avishai Margalit. They looked like people standing in front of a monkey cage, making faces at the monkeys. There was too much joy there. They said, we're monkeys too. But no one believed them. The feeling was that the joy that they have is to trick people, and it stuck. It was a real problem for them. At a conference back in the early 1970s, Danny was introduced to a prominent philosopher named Max Black and tried to explain to the great man his work with Amos. I'm not interested in the psychology of stupid people, said Black, and walked away. Danny and Amos didn't think of their work as the psychology of stupid people. Their very first experiments dramatizing the weakness of people's statistical intuitions had been conducted on professional statisticians. For every simple problem that fooled undergraduates, they could come up with a more complicated version to fool professors. At least a few professors didn't like the idea of that. Give people a visual illusion and they say, it's only my eyes, said Princeton psychologist Eldar Shafir. Give them a linguistic illusion, they're fooled, but they say, no big deal. Then you give them one of Amos and Danny's examples and they say, now you're insulting me. The first to take their work personally were the psychologist whose work it had trumped. Amos's former teacher, Ward Edwards, had written the original journal article in 1954 inviting psychologists to investigate the assumptions of economics. Still, he'd never imagined this. Two Israelis walking into the room and making a mockery of the entire conversation. In late 1970, after reading early drafts of Amos and Danny's papers on human judgment, Edwards wrote to complain. In what would be the first of many agitated letters, he adopted the tone of a wise and indulgent master speaking to his naive pupils. How could Amos and Danny possibly believe that there was anything to learn from putting silly questions to undergraduates? I think your data collection methods are such that I don't take seriously a single experimental finding you present, wrote Edwards. These students they had turned into their lab rats were careless and inattentive. And if they are confused and inattentive, they are much less likely to behave more like competent, intuitive statisticians. For every supposed limitation of the human mind Danny and Amos had uncovered, Edwards had an explanation. The gambler's fallacy, for instance. If people thought that a coin, after landing on heads five times in a row, was more likely, on the sixth toss, to land on tails, it wasn't because they misunderstood randomness. It was because people got bored doing the same thing all the time. Amos took the trouble to answer, almost politely, that first letter from his former professor. It was certainly a pleasure to read your detailed comments on our papers and to see that, right or wrong, you have not lost any of your old fighting spirit, he began 
before describing his former professor as not cogent. In particular, Amos continued, the objections you raised against our experimental method are simply unsupported. In essence, you engage in the practice of criticizing a procedural departure without showing how the departure might account for the results obtained. You do not present either contradictory data or a plausible alternative interpretation of our findings. Instead, you express a strong bias against our method of data collection and in favor of yours. This position is certainly understandable, yet it is hardly convincing. Edwards was not pleased, but he kept his anger to himself for a few years. No one wanted to get in a fight with Amos, said the psychologist Irv Biederman. Not in public. I only once ever saw anyone ever do it. There was this philosopher at a conference. He gets up to give his talk. He's going to challenge heuristics. Amos was there. When he finished talking, Amos got up to rebut. It was like an ISIS beheading, but with humor. Edwards must have sensed in any open conflict with Amos the possibility of being on the painful end of an ISIS beheading with humor. And yet Amos had championed the idea that man was a good intuitive statistician. He needed to say something. In the late 1970s, he finally found a principle on which to take a stand. The masses were not equipped to grasp Amos and Danny's message. The subtleties were beyond them. People needed to be protected from misleading themselves into thinking that their minds were less trustworthy than they actually were. I do not know whether you realize just how far that message has spread or how devastating its effects have been, Edwards wrote to Amos in September of 1979. I attended the organizational meeting of the Society for Medical Decision-Making one and a half weeks ago. I would estimate that every third paper mentioned your work in passing, mostly as justification for avoiding human intuition judgment, decision-making, and other intellectual processes. Even sophisticated doctors were getting from Danny and Amos only the crude, simplified message that their minds could never be trusted. What would become of medicine, of intellectual authority, of experts? Edwards sent Amos a working draft of his assault on Danny and Amos's work and hoped that Amos would leave him with his dignity. Amos didn't. The tone is snide, the evaluation of evidence is unfair, and there are too many technical difficulties to begin to discuss, Amos wrote in a curt note to Edwards. We are in sympathy with your attempt to redress what you regard as a distorted view of man, but we regret that you chose to do so by presenting a distorted view of our work. In his reply, Edwards did a fair impression of a man who has just realized that his fly is unzipped as he backpedals off a cliff. He offered up his personal problems, they ranged from serious jet lag to a decade's worth of personal frustrations, as excuses for his failed paper, and then went on to more or less concede that he'd wished he'd never written it. What especially embarrasses me is that after working so long as I did on trying to put this thing together, I should have been as blind to its many flaws as I was, he wrote to both Amos and Danny, before saying how he intended to entirely rewrite his paper and hoped very much to avoid any public controversy with them. Not everyone knew enough to be afraid of Amos. An Oxford philosopher named L. Jonathan Cohen raised a small philosophy-sized ruckus with a series of attacks in books and journals. He found alien the idea that you might learn something about the human mind by putting questions to people. He argued that as man had created the concept of rationality, he must, by definition, be rational. Rational was whatever most people did, or as Danny put it in a letter that he reluctantly sent in response to one of Cohen's articles, 
Any error that attracts a sufficient number of votes is not an error at all. Cohen labored to demonstrate that the mistakes discovered by Amos and Danny either were not mistakes or were the result of mathematical or scientific ignorance in people, easily remedied by a bit of exposure to college professors. We both make a living by teaching probability and statistics, Stanford's Percy Diaconis and David Friedman of the University of California at Berkeley wrote to the journal Behavioral and Brain Sciences, which had published one of Cohen's attacks. Over and over again, we see students and colleagues and ourselves making certain kinds of mistakes. Even the same mistake may be repeated by the same person many times. Cohen is wrong in dismissing this as the result of mathematical or scientific ignorance. But by then, it was clear that no matter how often people trained in statistics, affirmed this as well, 